Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. History is very important. History is so so freaking important. Do you know how important history is? I went on YouTube. I went on YouTube and I was looking at some documentary of about Hitler or the Nazis or something because I just find that area interesting. Obviously, it's something you watch while you eat or whatever. That's just the way I like to do things. More to the point, I followed a comment, a link in a comment, and then I got down a rabbit hole. And then the next thing I knew, I was watching documentaries on YouTube that were saying that the Nazis weren't so bad after all, that Hitler wasn't so bad after all, that Hitler was a good guy, that it was all just this big Jewish conspiracy. I'm not joking. These documentaries are out there. You can go and find them. It was just some big Jewish conspiracy and David Irving's going to save us all from the lies. And, wow, I just, I felt I actually had to go for a walk. I felt a bit sick. So when people go and tell you that history doesn't matter, when people tell you, like, next time you tell someone, oh, I'm listening to a history podcast, and they say, ooh, what's the point? That's never actually happened to me, by the way. But just in case it does, I can tell you now, there's a good reason for it. You're educating yourself now about an era in history that perhaps is not as controversial as that. But in any case, you're educating yourself about history, and history is a very important subject. Anyway, that was a bit of a ramble, but I felt I just had to get it out there, because, yeah, it really bothered me. It really bothered me that stuff like that can still exist, that's such charged ignorance can still exist and that like oh it just boggles the mind anyway i just i don't know anyway let's just get this started let's do something more cheerful perhaps or perhaps not so cheerful after all this is a long war you're listening to when diplomacy fails podcast my name is zach twomley i normally don't start these episodes like that but yeah i had a problem i had to get off my chest and there you go history is important and a second world war is not a big lie so there you have it As is normally the case with When Diplomacy Fails, we look at wars throughout history, and this is the seventh installment of that war that we were looking at, the Long War. More specifically, we're building up to the last siege of Vienna, so if you don't know what's going on, make sure to check out the previous episodes, or you may be a bit lost. Everyone else, thanks for your patience and for sticking with me, and let's get into this. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the seventh installment of our examination of The Long War. Last time we brought our coverage through the nitty-gritty relationship enjoyed and endured between the Ottoman Empire and the Crimean Tartars. Both peoples stood to gain, as we saw from this partnership, 
which was essentially a less restrictive form of vassalage, as the Ottomans were the overlords of the Tartar, and both were bound by a common historical past. The net result of this partnership, however equal or unequal, was that the enemies of the Ottomans became enemies of the Tartars, and they were thus subject to the full force of that fearsome people's arsenal. Be it in the physical, with proficient horse archery, the danger of enslavement or the tendency to plunder, or, as we saw in the psychological, the sheer panic and fear which accompanied news of the Tartars moving in force was felt once Sultan Mehmed IV announced that it was time for the Khan of the Tartars to fulfil his side of the contract between them. While the Tartars were arguably the most important and formidable aspect of the Ottoman war strategy, a fact we learned last time, in this episode we'll explore in more detail the fact that they were merely one inherent part of it. The Sultan depended and called upon several other vassals, pashas and allies as his great armed host marched westwards. At the same time, he also depended upon a breathtakingly efficient military system which displayed an unparalleled acumen for organisation and logistics. If it was true that the Ottoman army suffered from a lack of independent generals other than the Grand Vizier and on occasion the Sultan, then it is also true that, as they say, amateurs think of strategy, whereas real generals think of logistics. In this episode, then, we conclude our analysis of the military side of the Ottomans, from their vassals both willing and unwilling, as well as their own propensity to launch a well-organised, if not always well-led campaign. We round off the episode then by looking in more detail at the most sensitive vassal, the curiously divided but also critically important region of Hungary, once a proud and independent kingdom, now reduced to a militarised wasteland or buffer zone between east and west. If you're ready then, let's begin. In this site was exposed the greatest riches of the empire, consisting in jewels of inestimable value. Horses, clothes and furniture, the magnificence whereof is not to be expressed in writing. A round merchant of Constantinople watches the Sultan lead his enormous army out of the city towards Adern, October 1682. Dern was the rallying point for the Ottoman army before it made its way to Belgrade, that old Balkan bastion to the southeast of the morass of swamps and rivers that constituted the final set of fortifications before Vienna. Adern was an important symbolic location as well, as it was generally used as a war base in the event that the war was carried to the west. Constantinople was far too distant from the goings-on in Europe to be used, and Belgrade was too near, so Adern served as a happy medium. It was thus fortunate that the Sultan loved Adern more than any other city, yet it was also unfortunate for his enemies that he did, for on the Sultan's orders over 80 towns, fortresses and settlements had been conquered in Hungary, Poland, Ukraine and elsewhere by using this old city and its stunning palace and gardens as a base. 
Constantinople was the ancient city. It had been the ultimate goal, and many sultans since had attempted to recast it in their own image. Yet, it remained an unmistakably Roman city, despite their efforts. Adern, by contrast, was surrounded by open forests, with fast-flowing rivers and several opportunities to mask what had once been there. In other words, Adrianople. Having never truly lost their steppe ancestry, sultans often held their courts in the open air, with only a luxurious silk or other preciously crafted tent between the sultan and the elements. Adopting the nickname The Hunter for his exploits on horseback in his several reserves, Mehmed IV prized Adern for another reason, his other great passion, that of tending to gardens and of taking in their stunning, intricately detailed sights was a true joy of his. Our man, Evlea Chelebi, himself a wearied traveller from his sojourns through Persia, North Africa, Austria and further Ottoman lands, professed that in all honesty he had never seen anything in his life which matched the sight of the Sultan's gardens in Adern, saying, This shady garden was a delight to the eyes of Sultan Mehmed. Words are not enough to describe it, but we have tried our poor best to portray a mere drop in the ocean of its wonders. The gardens cannot be equalled by any other nation on earth, not even in that capital city of Vienna. In the gardens of Adern, Mehmed was free from the rigidity, the suffering restrictions, the incessant buzzing in his ear of needy courtiers, the endless din of the wider city, the heavy and thick smells of a city heavy with a population greater than several other centres of its kind on earth. Adern can be seen as the Sultan's kind of summer retreat, and having reached here for the first time in several years, Mehmed was in no hurry to leave. History would judge Mehmed, aside from the famous events outside Vienna, as a largely pacific ruler. He was plainly more interested in the hunt and his gardens than actual warfare, yet for the sake of appearances he had regularly to make a show of his own martial prowess. The decade before, when campaigning into Poland, the Sultan had marched at the head of an army and helped ensure, it was said, total victory over the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth with the seizure of the Podol region and the capture of its capital, Kamenets which Jan Sobieski would spend the next three decades attempting to take back. A sneaky reminder, guys, the 12-part biography series on Jan Sobieski's Life and Times, which is running from, well, now until the end of 2017, is available for patrons at the $5 level if you're interested, and that'll go into more detail on such events like the seizure of the Podol region, because, yeah, it was a pretty big deal to Jan Sobieski, and kind of made him a little bit, you could say, in the camp of being against the Ottomans going forward. Mirroring his ancestors in other ways, though, the great church at Kamenets was turned into a mosque, and Friday prayers were said, having supposedly achieved a glorious victory on the battlefield in 1673 in the seizure of Kamenets, Mehmed seemed content, a decade later in 1682, to profess no illusions about following the army out again. Kara Mustafa, the Grand Vizier by 1682, had appreciated that whatever his historical responsibilities may suggest, the Sultan was close to dreading the prospect of venturing out on campaign as he had done before. The thoughts of leaving his beloved Adurin made him miserable, and so it was up to Mustafa to persuade the Sultan that, even for the sake of appearances, this time around in 1682, no Ottoman subject really expected to see their Sultan venturing out at the head of the army. The Sultan, Mustafa made clear, 
had already demonstrated his martial prowess and penchant for devastating leadership. He did not now expect the 40-year-old sultan, and neither did any of his subjects, to expose his precious person to the rigours of warfare yet again. It would be a pointless exercise. This, of course, was precisely what the sultan wanted to hear, and Mehmed followed through with the next phase of Ottoman court procedure when in the course of war. The sultan did agree to take up a symbolic residence outside Adurin's walls for a week, and to lead the armed host to Belgrade, from where the campaign would be launched. Once the sultan's household infantry had left Belgrade, then it would be clear that authority had been vested in the Grand Vizier. This process of vesting the vizier with authority akin to that of a sultan while on campaign was a highly symbolic process. It had a double effect, because not only did it invest the vizier with the same authoritative powers over life and death that the sultan naturally possessed, but it also meant, perhaps more worryingly, that all responsibility for whatever misfortune befell the campaign would fall on the vizier, Mustafa in this case, rather than the sultan. At the same time, if Mustafa proved successful, it would be declared a victory for and by the sultan and the House of Osman would celebrate the triumph as his ancestors had done. In this way, the Sultan effectively couldn't lose, while the Vizier couldn't really win. Except, of course, he could. From the moment this occurred, Karim Mustafa would not merely be the Grand Vizier of the Sultan. He would also be the Saraskar, a supreme field commander whose word could not be countermanded except by the Sultan himself. It was a remarkable way of transferring and transporting the Sultan's authority over a vast distances, and all on campaign were instructed to treat his, Mustafa's, every word as if it had been issued forth in personal audience from my own, Mehmed's, pearl-dispensing tongue, forming part of my own auspicious utterances. Much like the traditions of warfare, where every element of the Ottoman army moved as it had done 200 years before, so too was the appointment of Saraskar a time and honoured process dating back generations. When it came time now for the vizier to order the troops forward, he did so knowing that the full weight of the responsibility for the campaign had been effectively abdicated by the sultan and was now in his hands. The sheer weight of this burden must have been something, yet if we are to believe what most histories say about him, Karim Mustafa would not have been buckling under the pressure by the time he left his master behind in Belgrade in the early summer of 1683. Instead, he was leading forward not merely an enormous armed force, but an idea which he had himself been the firmest advocate of for the longest time. An attack not merely to the west, towards the meagre treasures of Hungary, but into the softer Danubian plains and onto the gates of Vienna, where he would seize for his sultan the one prize which had always eluded the House of Osman. Turbaned scribes had sat in vast groups, pounding out reams of letters and official orders in the sultan's name, calling upon his vassals, allies and pashas to act and imploring those that may need some more persuading, such as the Tartars that we saw in the previous episode, to fall obediently into line. As far away as Syria and Baghdad, militias and their retainers were raised in the town squares and recruitment began in earnest for the irregulars. These individuals blackened the routes leading from their homes to the centre massing space of the army, first Constantinople, and then by October 1682, Adurn. The plan remained to stay at Adurn for the winter, so everyone could catch up and the worst weather could be avoided, and then march to Belgrade. 
This meant that the Pashas and their soldiers who had been summoned had until this point to reach the Sultan's camp outside Adurin's walls. And it was, it was imperative that they did so. Accurate tallies of those who had or had not arrived ensured that no Pasha could shirk his duties, nor would he dare to do so, for refusal meant certain death. To the north, far along the Danube, the Pasha of Buda, that old capital of Hungary, was responsible now for gathering the necessary soldiers, resources, and information on the enemy from his forward base. So the Ottoman Empire was effectively mobilizing itself over the year 1682, and was still gathering the resources and the men necessary by late spring 1683. It took a long time to gather all the forces required for battle, and it took even longer to bring these forces to bear on the enemy, but once the necessary waiting period had been passed, the results were breathtaking. No other power on earth was known to be able to command such an armed host with the flick of his pen, and this force effectively represented not merely the Sultan's majesty, but the literal Ottoman state on the move. This process of gloriously marching out of a given base with the Sultan at the head of an army was repeated three times. First out of Constantinople to journey towards Adurn, then from Adurn to Belgrade the Sultan marched some small part of the way, until finally from out of Belgrade the Grand Vizier represented the Sultan's majesty and led the army into the Hungarian plains. It would have been an unrivaled sight. The vanguard of the armed host was the Tartars who always rode a day or two ahead. They were followed by the bulk of the army, thousands of horsemen, and behind them infantry regiments from all across the empire, stretching back several miles. At the rear was the most troublesome element of the march, the increasingly unwieldy artillery train which had grown in size and scope as technology had allowed, but at the expense of speed. When attempting to measure the snail's pace of the Ottoman army, which granted Vienna so much time to prepare, it is worth considering the fact that the Ottomans marched out of Adurn towards a plain called Transdanubia, the name given to the region south of Buda, which was watered thoroughly by the Danube. At the best of times, the powerful Danube turned the flat lands of southern Hungary into a swampy marsh. At the worst of times, following particularly bad weather, the region became a near-impossible morass of mud, waterlogged ground, and raging rivers. If the winter of 1682-83 to was record-breakingly cold, then the rains which followed them from February onwards were some of the heaviest and most consistent the inhabitants there had ever seen. It meant, of course, that by the time the Ottomans left Adurn for Belgrade at the end of April of 1683, the procession was facing into a quagmire, with rain that had not stopped and became more torrential over the fortnight it took to reach Belgrade. By the time Belgrade was reached by the army on the 3rd of May 1683, the entire armed force was verging on mutiny and a halt was called to advance. Trudging through the submerged countryside and above all dragging the heavy artillery through the submerged countryside had already taken its toll on the army who were in need of a respite before they even officially launched the campaign. The launching pad for a western campaign was Belgrade as it had been several times since its capture. It was there that armed hosts, oblivious to their end goal, would be properly directed towards Vienna. This plan was not really the latest in a harebrained scheme hooked up by a sycophantic courtier to boost the Sultan's glory. Instead, the charge for Vienna had been planned strategically, agreed upon by Kara Mustafa and his master the Sultan, and apparently well suited to the geopolitical circumstances in Western Europe. After two decades of relative peace, it seemed appropriate for a number of reasons to 
violate that peace with the petty Austrian archdukes and seize that prize which had evaded their ancestors. It is now that we come to the question of why, a question which you may not even have thought about but which historians really do struggle with to this day. Why had the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire and his Grand Vizier deemed it appropriate to begin the march towards war with the Habsburgs in mid-1682? What had spurred them on to make war after decades of relatively tranquil peace, considering the circumstances of the day? There had been no diplomatic faux pas. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. No terrible insult thrown at either side and certainly no dramatic declaration of war actually made. It was certainly not the failure of diplomacy in its strictest sense, so what are we doing here? I'm just kidding. It was instead the latest salvo in a series of cannonades which had characterised the Habsburg-Ottoman relationship for the last 150 plus years. So the real question, rather than what provoked him to act, is why the Sultan and his Grand Vizier chose to take this opportunity and this moment in history to make a play for that ultimate prize. Well, let's investigate that question. If the Ottoman decision to make war against the Habsburgs lacks what may be called a satisfying answer, then it does at least host several different answers that make good sense when placed in the context of the era and of the last 150 years of ottoman Habsburg relations. The first thing we need to understand is that the two sides had battered against each other's borders for the last 150 years. Ever since the Kingdom of Hungary had been defeated and divided up between the Habsburgs, who claimed Royal Hungary as their Hungarian crown, and the Ottomans, who occupied much of Hungary and spat out the semi-independent vassal Transylvania, the entire region had served as a convenient, if greatly depleted, border region. In the simplest of terms, Hungary had become a buffer between the two empires, and it was in Hungary, therefore, that both empires had to invest much resources and time reinforcing their position, whether this was through the construction of great fortresses, in the case of the Habsburgs, or engaging in some clever diplomacy to keep the decks stacked against their rivals, as in the case of the Ottomans. In circumstances where perpetual peace was just never going to fly, war was a constant destination. While it is true that the Habsburgs didn't want the war to come and 
We'll get to that. They had been happy in past generations to turn what was a consistent raiding season into a proper war. If a permanent peace was never truly on the cards, then it stands to reason that both sides would always be looking for an edge against the other, something which would enable them to exploit a certain weakness. Be it a rebellion, a war in another theatre which distracted their attentions, economic depression, or, if you're lucky, all three. These circumstances were important capital in the Habsburg-Ottoman relationship, and they could be leveraged to serve the interests of the more powerful state, which was generally accepted to be the Ottomans. What I'm getting at here is arguably the forgotten weak spot of the Habsburgs, one which would in fact haunt them until their defeat at the end of the First World War. It was a weakness which became so acute that only a radical solution was believed capable of solving it in 1867. This weakness was the Hungarians, and throughout the life cycle of the Habsburg monarchy, Hungary appeared to present dangerous challenges to the Habsburg centre, while it also fatally undermined its authority in its border areas. We know that this problem persisted far beyond the 17th century, it's the reason why Austria would eventually become Austria-Hungary, and you could argue in a way that the Hungarians even dragged Vienna down in the end, because the Habsburgs proved simply unable to please that significant portion of their population, even while they felt compelled to grant them such great powers. Hungary in 1683 was a strange beast, as we know, because it was split into three, the Royal Habsburg part, semi-autonomous Transylvania, and then just simply Ottoman-occupied Hungary. The Habsburg portion of Hungary was by far the smallest part, yet it was within this European microstate that Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor, managed to advocate and advance such a damaging and disastrous policy of religious intolerance that the very security of Vienna itself came under threat. If we remember back to the Battle of St. Gotthard in 1664, we'll recall that the Hungarians desperately wished for Leopold to press the advantage already against the Ottomans after the battle, because they believed that the Turks were on the back foot following their loss, and that the Habsburgs could just roll over everything the Ottomans had and liberate Hungary unopposed. The reality was less simple, of course, and Leopold was mindful enough of his own limitations to sign the Peace of Vazvar, which effectively granted no concessions either to the Habsburgs or to the Hungarians, living under Ottoman control. Concerned at Louis XIV's vaunted ambitions, Leopold wanted to ensure that he had a free hand to act in the West when the time came, as it did three years later, and Louis made war on Spain. Yet, where Leopold on the surface seemed to act with a degree of caution and tact, when the Ottoman Empire was concerned, to the Hungarian portion of his subjects, he offered them nothing but intolerance and scorn. A further demonstration of the paramountcy of religion to domestic and international proceedings following 1648, contrary, of course, to the widely penned view that Westphalia ended all religious conflict and tensions, Leopold effectively galvanised the Hungarians by singling out and persecuting them based on their religious persuasion. In the same generation that Louis XIV would be derided by his Protestant neighbours for the Edict of Fontainebleau in 1685, the Holy Roman Emperor by this stage had already actively pursued a policy of deliberate discrimination against the Hungarian Protestants, Jews and other non-Catholics for over a decade. Leopold's comeuppance for such a policy didn't come in foreign condemnation. Instead it came in a native Hungarian rebellion far more dangerous than either Louis XIV's Huguenots or, arguably, the Bohemian Revolt 
1618. For all the lauded autocracy which the Turks were said to apply to their governing style in Hungary, at least the Turks proved far more effective at balancing that land's disparate elements than the Habsburgs did. The Ottomans kept the Catholic hierarchy weak to prevent the Hungarians from unifying behind it, and this led in turn to an explosion of Protestant ambitions in the region, with Calvinism stirred in there just for good measure. Such facts go against the established myths of the period, of course, that the Ottomans were barbarous, that the Habsburgs saved Christendom, and that the Hungarians desired Christian rulers. What the Hungarians wanted was tolerance and the freedom to live their lives as they desired. For the payment of a tax, the Ottoman authorities allowed this, and then they left them by themselves. But according to the Habsburgs, one's religious persuasion affected one's loyalty to the state, and no amount of paid tax could change that. The Counter-Reformation was granted a new lease of life in the Habsburg lands after the Thirty Years' War, and in Hungary above all, because it was here that the proselytizing Jesuits and Habsburg-sponsored Catholic institutions were allowed to spread most fervently. In his book on the Last Siege of Vienna, first published in 1964, the historian John Stoy gives a critically important background survey of the damage done to the Habsburg reputation in Hungary through its pervasive Catholic missions. He writes, the seminary for clergy at Ternava came into Jesuit hands in 1649, and the Jesuit academy in the chief Protestant city of eastern Hungary, Kassa, was accorded the status of a university in 1660. From the two major points and a host of lesser ones, Catholic influence radiated fast. They enjoyed the Vienna government's firm support because the Emperor Ferdinand II and his successors held explicitly that the Catholic creed was the surest test of political loyalty. Measures based on this premise were bound to push Protestants into further acts of disloyalty. By examining in more detail how the Hungarians felt after the 1664 campaign, we begin to see the critical difference between how the Habsburgs and the Ottomans treated their frontiers, as well as their vassals. In the likes of Royal Hungary and Croatia, regions where the Habsburg influence was not so completely entrenched, Fortresses in the new and expensive style were built, aimed at towering over the other settlements and sending out the clear message, to Ottoman and to Habsburg citizen alike, that Habsburg power was absolute. In the Ottoman sphere, while fortresses were remarkably lacking in their Hungarian border regions, what they lacked in fortresses they made up for with diplomatic finesse. The act of balancing the disparate vassals off one another was a constant game that Constantinople excelled at, and which the Habsburgs proved desperately ill-equipped to play. Whether it was balancing the Crimean Tartars off the several competing Cossack groups, or appeasing and coercing the vassals of Wallachia, Moldavia, and Transylvania in their turn, John Stoy wrote that, The general strategy of the Turks was to restrain one vassal by means of the other, with the minimum possible use of their own strength. We've already seen the importance of the Tartars to the Ottoman war effort, and while the smaller Balkan vassals didn't hold the same importance to the Ottomans during times of war, the whole region was critically important for maintaining the integrity of the empire and the majesty of the sultan, who was bolstered in his prestige and renown by having so many supplicant vassals on hand. The leaders of Wallachia and Moldavia were the hospodars, or princes, on a similar status to that of Transylvania, but Without the historic traditions of Hungarian kingship, the leaders in Wallachia and Moldavia had after all once been ruled by that same Hungarian kingdom, 
and the Ottoman strategy was to effectively follow the medieval Hungarian model for the sake of a peaceful transition, arguably at the expense of the region's betterment. The submission of these individuals to the Sultan didn't mean that either the Hospodars or the Transylvanian princes possessed no autonomy. They were patrons of arts and culture at the $5 level, they were fond of classical works, and they possessed dynasties deliberately and patriotically linked with their vaunted past. The dominant families in these vassals ensured that Ottoman demands were obeyed, and when it came time for war, their regulars followed the Sultan's banner towards Belgrade. These forces were then swelled by men coming from the Danubian garrisons and from the Pashas, who ruled the likes of Buda, downriver from Vienna. By 1680, the flow of history had produced several ruling families in the different vassals, and Hungary was no exception to this rule. The princes of Transylvania traditionally sought to exhibit as much independence as possible. We remember that Bethlen Gabor marched to besiege Vienna alongside the Bohemians in 1619, while George Rakocci intervened in the Cossack uprising against the Commonwealth for his own gain in the early 1650s. Sometimes these actions were accepted by the Turks, and other times they were brutally suppressed. So it was that George Rakocci was judged to have overstepped his station by intervening in the Commonwealth and upsetting the Cossack and Tartar balance there. He was deposed and replaced in 1662 by a subservient replacement, Mikhail Apafi, who still held the title of Prince of Transylvania by 1683. From 1670, Vienna's autocratic policy led to what was called the Magyar Conspiracy, where a series of revolts against Habsburg authority in royal Hungary led to a brutal campaign of repression and suppression and guerrilla warfare in return by the Hungarians, as reprisal followed reprisal along the narrow slice of royal Hungary which bordered the Ottoman lands. What should have struck Habsburg observers of this revolt was the fact that it was largely led by the same families who, only a few years before, had fought against the Ottomans on the Habsburg's behalf. The likes of Nicolas Zrinsky, who had roused the population of Hungary to effectively stump the Ottomans between 1663 and 64, felt compelled to rise against the Habsburgs in the years that followed, owing to his conviction that only the native-born families of the region could and would properly stand up for its interests. His naive dream of establishing an independent state between the Habsburg and Ottoman regimes proved illusory, but its core message lingered on in the hearts and minds of several of his peers, even after he died in a hunting accident in 1670. These individuals, who had spent most of their lives as Habsburg subjects, loyal to Vienna, began to throw off the Habsburg yoke in search of complete freedoms for Hungary. They were repulsed from their homes and fled into exile in Ottoman-controlled Transylvania, where things began to get a bit more complicated. Although the original plan had involved the ridding of all forms of foreign rule, the situation of the rebellious exiles had been exacerbated by the repressive policies of the Habsburgs, who came to equate all Protestants with rebels and began evicting them from their lands, whether they'd taken part in the revolts or not. The stream of Magyar nobles and their families into Transylvania became a flood by the late 1670s, but what this group desperately needed was a leader. Enter one of the most successful national leaders of Hungary of his day, Imre Tokoli. 
Tuckerley had been born into a family of influential and loyal Habsburg Hungarian subjects. His father had owned a strategically important castle at Arva, and from this point had repulsed several Turkish incursions in the past. When Stephen died at the height of the Magyar revolts in 1672, a distracted and desperate Habsburg administration elected to occupy his castle in the name of the state, rather than allow his vaguely loyal son inherit it and then pose a problem for the nation's security. By so acting though, they effectively forced Imre Tokoli into revolt and he landed in Transylvania with his peers. Tokoli was attractive, well-spoken and he came from quality noble stock. And in 1678 he was chosen to lead the exiles of the Magyars back into royal Hungary against the Habsburgs while Kara Mustafa looked gleefully on. Their resulting success surprised even the Ottomans, and they led to Tokali effectively carving out a northern portion of royal Hungary for himself over the next two years. Not only did he acquire a series of strategically important castles, he also captured a large supply of war materials from the careless Habsburg administration, as well as much silver and cannon. As his prestige soared, Karim Mustafa began to scheme about how to best use him to the Habsburg's detriment. For the next two years, Tokali consolidated his position by winning additional victories, outmaneuvering the Habsburgs and keeping everyone guessing by marrying into the incumbent Hungarian families in royal Hungary. After acquiring Leopold's reluctant approval for that marriage, Tokali then declared himself an ally of the Sultan in June 1682, and he offered his services to the Ottomans. For the next six months, he and his followers raided progressively north, eastwards, capturing that citadel at Kassah where the Jesuit University had been established in 1660, and sacking it thoroughly. Now on the outskirts of Hungary and looking across the Carpathians into the Commonwealth, Jan Sobieski's agents in Vienna urged Leopold to get a handle on his domestic situation before it led to further disaster and spilled into the lands of his neighbours. By this point, though, the damage had already been done. By declaring himself the Sultan's ally and inviting the Ottoman Empire in, Imre Tokali effectively guaranteed a fresh campaign between the two adversaries. Hungary was simply too important a region for the Ottomans to look a gift horse like Tokali's willing rebellion against Vienna in the mouth. So it was that through their own pig-headedness in administration, through intolerance in religion and through naivety in policy with respect to Hungary, the Habsburgs had created a situation which Kara Mustafa couldn't help but exploit by the early 1680s. Almost hilariously then, while such pieces were moving on the board, the Habsburg envoy at Constantinople began urging the Ottomans to renew that same advantageous peace treaty from 1664, which had so enraged the Hungarians. It was now abundantly clear where the advantage lay. With their Hungarian possessions up in arms and their security fatally undermined by a former subject now in open rebellion, the Ottomans couldn't possibly have left the opportunity to strike a devastating blow at their rival of the last 150 years just slip through their fingers. Imre Tokali's rebellion against the Habsburgs gave them the opportunity. His appeals for aid gave them the excuse, and now Kara Mustafa sought to present his sultan with the case for war. Mehmed IV, incidentally, needed little in the way of convincing. There could be no peace in such advantageous circumstances, it was time to renew the Great War, and it was time for the Sultan to fulfil his destiny. Next time, we'll properly unwrap the diplomatic process, which first persuaded the Habsburgs that there could be no peace, 
and then persuaded them that they must embark on a great diplomatic quest to solicit allies. I hope you'll join me for that episode, and I hope you've enjoyed these background episodes. Before we get out of here, guys, it's been a long time coming, and it's about time we counted down the patrons that we've had in the last month. To start off, first we have Wendy Kasker, Permanent Undersecretary, Sam Oppenheim, Student of Diplomacy, John Adkin, Diplomat, Darwin Seto, Diplomat, Evan Cannon, Diplomat, Marcus Benjamin, Diplomat, James David Jeffries, Diplomat, Melissa Weeb, Diplomat, Daniel Frings, Diplomat, Tyler Whittaker, Student of Diplomacy, James White, Diplomat, Godfrey Roberts, Embassy Intern, and Bob Krause, Diplomat. A huge thanks, obviously, to all those new patrons. I really appreciate your guys' support, and I hope you're enjoying the extra content, such as the Jan Sobieski biography, which, don't forget, is still going and is running to the end of this year. All right, guys, that's the podcast for this week. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.